you know, I think if I could wave a magic wand, the partnership model, that should go away. I don't think it's makes sense, really. People don't want to work 10 to 15 years before they, you know, get the payoff. They don't want that debt of retiring out the older partners. I mean, that's why all these merger happens. Those young people are smart. Why do we take on that debt? This episode of the Earmark Podcast is sponsored by Giraffe. Giraffe delivers an all-in-one budgeting, reporting, and forecasting platform that empowers firms of all sizes to grow by saving countless hours, enabling you to provide exceptional client advisory services. Whether you're just starting out on your financial planning and advisory journey or want to optimize your existing practice, Giraffe was built for you. Later, I'll share a special offer for anyone who's ready to learn more. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Earmark Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Oliver, and joining me today is Rita Keller. Rita is a nationally known CPA firm management consultant, speaker, and author. She is a former shareholder and chief operating officer of a large, successful regional CPA firm and has over 35 years hands-on experience in the management, marketing, technology, and administration of a successful firm. She played a key role in growing the firm from 11 people to over 125 team members with three offices. Rita, welcome to the Earmark Podcast. Hi, Blake. Delighted to be here. I love to to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm eager to talk to you because I'm a non-traditional CPA, and I had sort of the reverse experience of, I think, most accountants who go to school for accounting, go work in often a large firm and then perhaps make their way to a smaller firm and then maybe even start their own at some point, right? That tends to be the way it goes, right? You learn at the big firm and then you go do your own thing or you maybe work in a regional firm, smaller firm. And so I did the opposite where I started my own firm having never worked in one before. And we were, you know, just, we were, we were doing the whole cloud accounting thing. We were doing fixed fees. I, I didn't know any better. And so for me, I encounter a lot of resistance to the things that I found to be successful in my firm. You know, not like hourly billing, a great example, right? And just just management style, management techniques. I'm just flabbergasted why some of these practices are still in place when we we know there's a better way, or at least I I I feel like there is. So I can't understand it because I didn't I didn't live it, but you you (laughs) you lived it. Um, So I'd love to talk about that. And I guess just so that we have some context, right? Like you, you started in this um, small firm, you grew it from 11 to 125 team members, and you became the COO of that firm. How did you get your start in accounting? Well, very simply, I needed a job. You know, I, uh, I had taken a break from uh, working to have my son so I was off for about three or four years, and I got the itch to go back to work. Prior to that, I worked in Alcoa in the accounting department at a local manufacturing plant near my home, and 
got my first taste of accounting in, in, in that setting, which is so different, you know, than public accounting. I didn't know any CPAs. I didn't know what they did. Didn't have any relatives or any background in that at all. And I got a call from a high school friend that said, uh, we're looking for something. We heard you were looking for a job because I went, went to go back to work in, in administration somewhere. So I went and interviewed with a CPA firm and was hired. I always say it's the S word that we don't say anymore. It's a bad word, secretary. <laughs> you don't say secretary anymore. I was hired as the administrative assistant to a managing partner of a nine, 10 person firm. So being that secretary to the managing partner, I learned how to run the firm. You know, everything that, because he ran the firm. He made all the, most of the decisions. He had a couple partners and I learned under him, old school guy started at Deloitte and Touche, I think it was, and then went out, like you mentioned earlier when we were talking, started, bought a small practice in a smaller city, had his own firm. He was very um, traditional, very strict, very focused on process and procedures, which is not what I have experienced as I've talked with other firms. But he was knew how he wanted things done, and we all marched the line. You know, he was a, a dictator, more or less. That's how they were back then. This is, you know, 35 years ago, 35, 40 years ago. And I learned so much from him, you know, and he was so encouraging to me. You could make a huge mistake and he would talk you through it and counsel you. But if you put the paper clip the wrong direction, he would be irate. <laughs> you know, just little things would bug you. So he was my first mentor, I guess, and encouraged me to, at that time, I went ahead and got the um, designation certified professional secretary. You had to take a two-day exam and it was a big deal. He paid for all that paid for my study materials, paid for all of that, and very encouraging. So I think a lot of my progress is because I've had good role models and good mentors. I mean, I, I do a lot of speaking and consulting about mentoring in CPA firms. It's so important. And so when it came time to retire, he tapped a young gentleman on the shoulder, and he had two partners. And the older one of the two thought he was going to be the next managing partner, but surprise, he picked the younger one. When that young man took over is when I got the title firm administrator. It was just coming into vogue back then. Uh, law firms have had legal firm administrators for like a hundred years, but accounting firms didn't have them. So that's when it first started. And that's when the CPA Firm Management Association, now that is a, an organization for firm administrators and managing partners, it came into being, and I joined that. That also helped me progress. And so when this young guy took over, 32 years old, and I became firm administrator, we just had this desire to be better, bigger and better. Uh, we outgrew our small city and uh, opened an office in Dayton, Ohio, a much larger city nearby. We had some clients there. We kind of went in there cold, which is a big mistake. You know, don't open an office cold. It's, it's much harder. And then we found a merger candidate and we doubled our size. And then we found another and another. So we really grew by acquisition. So I went through five acquisitions in the, all those years at the firm. So I learned uh, the association that I belong to uh, started asking me to tell us how you did this or tell us how you did that. So I started speaking. And I got invited to the Missouri MAP Conference. 
you've probably never heard of that. It was a back in the 80s, it was the premier management conference for CPAs and it attracted people from all over the country. They somehow heard about me and asked me to come and speak, picked me up in a limousine at the airport. I was very impressed. It was a, it was like first class back then. So there I met a wider audience and it grew. And then I started being interviewed and I wrote some articles for the practical accountant and some of the things that are gone now. And I loved it. You know, I, I loved the challenge of trying new ideas because I had the first word processor in our firm. The firm, when I joined it, already had a computer. Way back then, it was a big machine, you know, with big round disks that they stuck in. And, and we did our own in-house 1040s, computerized, you know. So we were always anxious to try the new technology. And the partner group, to me, which is unusual, what I've seen in recent years, they wanted to change. They wanted to do, we want to be leading edge, not bleeding edge. So we would learn from other firms. And I was sort of the, um, because I was speaking and networking with other CPA firms, I'd bring back ideas, you know, I, and I'd find mentors. If, if I bumped into someone, I tell people now, if you meet someone who you think they really have it all together, get to know them, you know, get, they'll be your mentor. And I did that throughout my career when I would hear speakers. I went to the Indiana MAP conference. Most states had one back then. I know they have one up in Massachusetts now, Connecticut. I think they have a Northeast one. I went to the Indiana MAP conference. This was in the 80s. There were probably 200, 250, two women, me and another lady. Two women was all that was there. Two women uh, out of 150 attendees. Oh, yeah, probably more than 150. Yeah. And it was managing partners of firms. It was partners that come to the MAP conference. And I met a speaker there, and I introduced myself to him. And every time I heard a speaker that was a management consultant, I would uh, introduce myself. And they would answer my questions, you know, then I could email them. So I built a network of other consultants, which also helped the firm. And we hired a lot of them. You know, we had Alan Colton do our retreat. We had Sam Allred. We had Bill Reeb. You probably know all those names. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Gary Boomer. I can't think who else. Jay Nisberg back in the day. And so I got to meet all of those people who knew a lot about managing CPA firms. And I learned from them. And eventually, they invited me to become, they had a group of consultants I call them the old timers, including myself. It was called the New Horizon Group. It's still active today. The original members, most of them are, are not members anymore. But it was Mark Rosenberg, uh, Chris Fredrickson, Don Scholl, Alan Colton, August Aquila. And uh, I was the first female they invited into that group. So just some luck I had of knowing the right people. And I always tease Alan Colton. I knew him when he was he sold marketing materials. That was how he learned. That's how I met CPA firms. He sold marketing materials to CPA firms. So I've known him probably 30 years. And so it's it's just been a growing experience. But the core of it is I loved what I was doing. You know, I always felt 
like it was my firm. You know, I wanted, I was proud of it. And I think that that helped. And I had a, a pretty aggressive partner group that wanted to succeed and banded together. Ready to eliminate frustrating spreadsheets and save countless hours each month? Giraffe has created a strategic technology platform that delivers smarter financials and faster insights. Like each Giraffe's unique spots, Giraffe is different from others in the market. They've made financial forecasting and modeling affordable and accessible to accounting firms of any size. Giraffe quickly integrates with your client's existing financial, HRIS, payroll, CRM, and other systems for a seamless experience to generate custom client dashboards and reports in minutes. Arm your clients with data to make better decisions faster and improve their bottom line. Giraffe understands the challenges of modern accounting firms when it comes to building your advisory practice. As your partner, Giraffe is with you every step of the way. They give you the technology platform, but also the training, technical skills, sales and marketing support, so you can confidently sell your new services. You'll benefit from best practices they've learned from working with over 300 accounting firms so that you can take your client advisory services to new heights. Book your demo today at giraffe.com earmark to see how partnering with Giraffe is a win for you and your clients. For a limited time, they'll send you a pair of their Tower Power Socks for signing up. Offer available while supplies last in the U.S. only. That's J-I-R-A-V dot com slash earmark. So your firm grew by acquisition, which is, I think, typical, right? Most CPA right. firms tend to grow that way. If you want to grow faster, yes. Yes. And your role as chief administrator or firm administrator, that was, un- that was new, a newer idea, right? Right. So when you went to this conference, the MAP conference, Management of an Accounting Practice, that's what mm-hmm. that, that stands for. Were there, you said it was mostly managing partners there. Were there many other administrators or no. COOs or no? No. Okay. No, they weren't. When I went to the Missouri MAP conference, they invited me because what's a firm administrator do? They wanted me to enlighten no. them. You know, how can it help firms, which I continue to talk about to this day. You know, it's taking all of that non-billable time away from partners. That's the secret to success if you want to grow your firm. Your partners have to be outward focused. They have to be helping clients, mentoring young people, bringing in new business. They don't need to be planning the company picnic or uh, deciding what CPE the new hire goes to. They don't need to worry about payroll and, you know, all the HR stuff. Mm -hmm. And in smaller firms, the firm administrator, now they're calling that the CPA Firm Management Association has kind of rebranded and they call that position practice manager now, which more descriptive, you know, I think it really is what you do. And COO is still used quite a bit, you know, if in firms, but it's someone who takes care of operations. So they, they make sure that the bills get paid. They make sure, uh, they wear many hats in most yeah. firms until you get to a certain size. Because, you know, I, I was the firm bookkeeper. I was the tech person. I was the marketing director. I handled all those until we got big enough that we hired those positions. And then when I left the firm, you know, my staff was six people, a controller, IT director, marketing director, 
HR director and the IT. I think there were four people in IT at that time. So I feel like I could help them because I had filled their roles at one time or another, which helped with firm growth. So it was beneficial to me to, to have those experiences. And I think it, it helped the firm also grow. Oh, yeah. Well, and we see this in medical practices, like very few, I feel like very few medical practices are actually run by doctors these days. You have professionals, right, who handle all the billing and who handle all of the technology and and then the the experts can come in and see patients. Exactly. Exactly. Similar. And like you said, you mentioned law law practices. It's very common now for a, a, a legal practice to have an administrator, but it's not Still, I feel like it's not necessarily all that common, especially with small firms, to have this role. Well, in small firms, I call them working firm administrators. You know, as our firm grew, there were times when I still had to be hands-on with with various duties. And when you get to a certain size, uh, and firms ask me this a lot, you know, how big do you have to be to have a marketing director or an HR director? And, you know, from my experience, you know, you have to grow... So it's better to have that firm administrator or practice manager that can wear many hats because that's what they need to do as the firm grows. You know, and I had an admin team, you know, three or four administrative people that did, you know, tax assembly and all that. But when you get to a certain size, you just, one person can't handle it all. And then in the larger firms, that role sort of gets diminished because you're so departmentalized. Most firms probably under 70 people. They don't have a strict tax department and an audit department. You know, the auditors have to come in and do tax. You know, that that's the way the smaller firms, you have to wear many hats as a staff person or as a manager. So it's same with the firm administrator. You wear many hats until you get big enough to have your own team of people that can help you. The sad thing is so many of the firms that I've worked with over the years are gone. You know, they've been acquired. I call them the bread and butter firms, the firms under 100 people, you know, not not the top 100 firms, firms that have zero to, and some of my clients are very small. And I think that's what I enjoy now is helping those firms that don't have all those resources. So a firm under 10 people, they, they can't afford a firm administrator that really doesn't do work, you know? So is that true though? Because I feel like at that point, at that size, even with 10 people, if you've got partners and managers who are doing that work, it's it's not a great use of their time. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah. No. And, and that's, that's how it really grows is when they decide, well, I shouldn't be doing this. But it's easy to say, Blake, but partners cling to things. And my story is about, you know, I was always looking for what can I take away from you that's non-billable. So, and it didn't mean just me. I would delegate it to the admin team. I didn't do it all of it myself, but admin can take a lot away from partners. But some partners, believe it or not, they like to have an excuse for having non-billable time. (laughs) So if, (laughs) if I'm in charge of CPE, then I have to spend all this time planning that Sally's going to go to these three classes and Joe's going to go to those. It's all administrative work, you know? So you're saying that partners want to have a little buffer. They want to have, they want to have this non-billable time 
So they hold on to responsibilities that they should be giving off to giving to somebody who is all non-billable. That's true. For from my from what I have observed over many years, uh-huh. looking at many firms, and there's pressure on partners too. I mean, they can make the biggest difference. The more billable they are, I mean, they they've got high billing rates. You know, the more mm-hmm. money's coming into the firm. So if they can not be bothered, but it it's really Wait, like you them, said, it creates pressure. Well, and they shouldn't be bringing in business. But so many partners aren't able to bring in business or they don't like it. That's probably what it is. They don't like to market and sell. You know, that's that I didn't become an accountant to be a salesperson. You know, when marketing first hit this, I was there when marketing first came into vogue for CPA firms. You know, it was prohibited way back before my time. They were not. When 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 did that change? That was. I don't know. It was before (laughs) it had to be a long time ago. Maybe Probably the in 60s the fi- or something, In right? the 50s or 50s? 60s, maybe. Yeah. I, But it wasn't too far behind when I joined because marketing was, oh my gosh, that was like a shock to them. We don't know. what What's that mean? What do we have to do? And of course, they were already doing a lot. They were networking. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, digital world came into effect and it's changed a lot more. I still think personal marketing is, is very successful for those that do it in their own communities. It's a challenge. Right. It's it's not comfortable. Like you said, most people don't go into accounting to do sales. It's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of what you like to do. I like to sit at my desk. I like to solve problems. You know, I like working with clients, but in the context of helping them with their right. problems. Not, well, and yeah. it's such a people business now, Blake. I mean, it's yeah. it's public accounting is a people business, but students that choose accounting for their career don't really know that, you know, they like numbers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I went, I wanted to be an engineer, but I couldn't quite make that. So I took accounting. I've heard that story many times. I kind of like working with numbers. So I went into accounting. Uh, they thought, well, I can sit at a desk all day and do numbers. You know, it's what I love to do, especially tax people. They love tax. It's when you bring a client in face to face with them, it makes them nervous. I've heard them say that, oh, so-and-so is coming in to see me today. I just get, my stomach hurts when I have to sit down with a client. One tax partner told me once, you know? It's, yeah. So it's really those that have been able to bridge that to be not so technical, but to be more of a people person, you know, emotional intelligence. Accountants are very low on that scale, you know, understanding emotions and mm-hmm. dealing with all that. And, oh my gosh, there's lots of good stories about that when partners first had to uh, deal with a female staff person crying. You know, it happens. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It happens. And we, I always told them it, it doesn't mean anything. And women can't help that. They just cry. They may not even be upset. You know, they might. Yeah. But it, it's hard for, for that type of personality. And I, that's what interests me now, as I've seen way back when I did it whole study on Generation X, because they were, boy, they were weird, you know, Generation X, they wanted some flex, a little bit of flexibility. And, and then, then came the millennials. That's you know, me. And I did, yeah. did a lot of study on the millennials. Now we got Gen Z. And it's just amazing to me that each generation, they say accounting firms are going to change when those uh, Gen X get in control. Well, accounting firms are going to change when those millennials get in control. 
If you think about it, all those generations, they're still the accounting personality. Right. Well, the people they who, aren't that different. The about, people who don't fit, right? They they leave. That's that what you're saying? Is that like even though generations change over, the culture of public accounting kind of stays fairly the same. Well, and those that do stay, because they have been raised by the veteran generation, then it was the the baby boomers, and then it was Generation X. Well, they've been in that culture so long, but the time they get to a leadership role, they're pretty much just like their forebearers. Right. You know, so it's not, you can't put people in those boxes anymore. You know, and I always told that when I talked about generations in some of my presentations, it's it's all about dealing. It's dealing individual by individual because you can have a young person that acts like a baby boomer. Right. You know, if you go yeah. by those descriptions and a baby boomer that seems like a millennial. I mean, it's so it's I haven't seen in all my years. You think I would have seen massive change in partner personalities. Haven't. What about on the staff side? Has that changed? That is changing more rapidly. And maybe that that maybe this will finally be that push. You know, I think COVID is the best thing that ever happened to CPA firms. I hate to say it. And the AICPA will tell you, they thought it would take them probably seven to 10 years to become completely paperless and remote. They happen, it happened in two or three weeks. Yeah. Because they had to. They just didn't want to. And there's still a lot of them that aren't. It just, I cringe when I, I talk to firms that are not paperless. Well, and they're, they're still out there. And yeah. you know, I tell them we went paperless in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. Look how many years ago that's been. Well, there's an interesting split with the larger firms, like let's say over 100 people and sub 100, because if you're over 100, you've got, the remote auditing capabilities. You kind of have to, right? Because you're multi-office, you're sending people around. Uh, it can't be location dependent. And so when I, I worked briefly at a large firm, a top 20 firm, 25 at the time, and everything I had, I could work from home. I could work from anywhere. So when that firm hit, when the pandemic hit, they had no problem with people mm-hmm. not being in the office, right? And it sort of was like, a, it was just a mental shift, people not being there physically. But everything else already worked. But you know, for the smaller firms, you're saying that was where they struggled, like single office firms. Yeah, the smaller firms. I mean, they a lot of them didn't allow people to work from home. You know, even up until 2020. Yeah, uh, certain people could work from home if they earned that right. If they were, if they had a sick kids, for example, mm-hmm. or if we had a snowstorm or whatever, they could work from home. But not everyone had laptops. You know, not. Now the only people that cannot work from home in, is the administrative staff. All through COVID, they were in offices scanning things to yeah. keep everybody busy, you know, and they fought the battle firsthand. Giraffe chose the name Giraffe for a reason. Like the giraffe and its astounding height, Their solution gives finance leaders the best 360-degree view possible so you can drive your clients' businesses forward with confidence and speed. Thinking about offering advisory services and don't know where to start? 
Giraffe makes building your financial planning and advisory practice so much easier. Finding the right technology to efficiently offer your services is only part of the challenge. Often, the more daunting part is determining how to staff, price, package, and deliver services to clients. This is where Giraffe shines. Not only do they offer the leading budgeting, forecasting, and planning technology solution, they've already empowered over 300 accounting firms with the training and resources needed to successfully build their advisory practices. What are you waiting for? Book your demo today at giraffe.com earmark. That's J-I-R-A-V dot com slash earmark. And they'll send you a pair of their Tower Power Socks. Offer available while supplies last in the U.S. only. So what's the thing that you think uh, holds back firms from growth? Like, What's the number one problem? Resistance because, to change. Resistance to change? Mm-hmm. Like, What kind of resistance? Like, what are they resisting? I got to have that paper in my hand. This is this is a big return. I can't do it on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have three screens? Oh, we only have two. Well, you need three if you're going to review tax. You know, it's I got to have that paper. Uh, well, we've always done it this same old. We've always done it this way, and it's working because they've been successful. Like CPAs in public practice, CPA partners are successful in spite of themselves. Successful financially, right? But not in terms of having work-life balance, not in, right? Like not in terms of having good family dynamics. I mean, the joke is, right? That like, sure, you'll, you can make partner and make half a million dollars a year, but you're going to be divorced three times, right? You're not going to see your kids. So there's this devil's bargain that you have to strike. It feels like to be, quote unquote, successful. But that's partners. Once you get to partner, you have it made. You're not there. And if you play golf on Friday, you know, you have people doing the work for you. And that's been the carrot we've held out there for so many years. When you get to partner, when you get to partner, you know, you can, right. it, it gets better. Is that true? Is it better? I mean, I feel like people would be happier <laughs> if it was Well, better. again, you got the accountant and you must not be a typical accountant, but no, they love I'm, what they the do. Opposite. They love what they do. Yeah, they're they're doing it. If they, they're not efficiently, profitably, they're doing it profitably. Right. They're making lots of money doing what they love, and that's why you know the younger people they want that balance. The older people they want to keep working. You know, they get to yeah. that stage where their kids have probably grown up. And I mean, I've got clients where they. They have partners that just won't let go, won't just ride off into the sunset, which yeah. discourages the younger people. Well, and that's that stat uh, the ICPA put, puts out every now and then where it's something like 75% of CPAs are eligible for retirement. And like that's now. And the younger generation just isn't, isn't interested in this path where it's, you got to put in your 10, 20 years of True. sweat, right? And then there's this promise land of partnership. But like how many millennials, especially how many Gen Zers want to work for the same company for their entire career? Like no, it's, that, that's right? true. That, and yeah. that's what's hurting the CPA profession. You know, they've, they need to change. They need to rebrand themselves, in my opinion. You know, I think, and if I could wave a magic wand, the partnership model, that should go away. You know, it, it, I don't think it's 
makes sense, really. People don't want to work 10 to 15 years before they, you know, get the payoff. They don't want to buy, they don't want that debt of retiring out the older partners. I mean, that's why all these merger happens. Those young people are smart. Why do we take on that debt? You know, we've got three old guys that we're going to be paying big bucks to, to retire them out. So, I mean, it's, it is changing for the better, but I, I think it's, it's going to have to change the business model because you, you people, not everybody wants that to climb that ladder. Back in the 80s and 90s, even into 2000s, that was, you know, here's the step ladder. That's what you wanted to do. That's, we wanted everybody to work your way up. You can be partner, although you knew they weren't going to, not all of them. We didn't think about, well, it's okay to have people working if they want to work at a senior level for 20 years. What's wrong with that? If right. they love what they do. Yeah. What do you think is going to replace the partner model? Oh, boy. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, it's just any kind of small business model, I guess. You have owners and you have employees. Mm -hmm. And you don't have that pressure of climbing the ladder. You know, you fill the slots with the people that are capable. And those people get paid well for whatever level they're on, whatever Mm -hmm. type of work they do. And there's not that ceiling so much. You know, you're working for a small business owner. You're not working for 10 partners. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Well, and we see that in uh, in the space that I operate in, or I had my business in this cloud accounting space, f- virtual firms. We see a lot of firms pop up that aren't CPA firms. There's a corporate model. You have the CEO, maybe you have investors. And so I, I would say probably like half the firms that I talk to on a regular basis are under that model now. Right. And okay. I'm curious, like if it will scale up, right? We, we, um, there's a firm that just entered the top 100 list for the first time accounting today's top 100 firms list, uh, your part-time controller, and they're not a partnership. And they, that name doesn't sound like a CPA firm, right? They're, they are a business that provides controller services to not-for-profits. And they've got like 400 employees. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me, really. It makes sense. But I guess Except for that- I don't know about the audit. What do you think about the audit E&Y and their split off of their audit? Audit practice? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because- uh, in researching it or in, in learning about it, I realized, I found out that this has happened before. The big four, 30 years ago, I don't know how many years ago, decades ago, grew consulting practices. And then everybody but, was it Deloitte, split them off after Enron. Yeah, I think it was Deloitte. I think Deloitte I think held was. on to it. But the others you know, split it off. And I think one became Accenture, right? Like, And, mm-hmm. and one got bought by... IBM, it might've been, I can't remember, but like this has happened before. And so I'm wondering if like, is EY splitting apart, you know, because I mean, they just had this $100 million cheating scandal and they've had the wire card audit failure. And there was uh, with that entity in China, the uh, luck and coffee. And like, they've been the audit, the audit partners have not been helping with the brand of EY. Let's just say that over the last few years. And so my theory is that it's really, it's like the consulting partners want to just put that as behind them and not have to, you know, be a part of that, right? It's not a good look, but 
I don't know. It could just be like everybody wants to take private equity money and, you know, or, or IPO and make a bunch of money, right? Like it could be that. I don't know. What do you could think? Be. Could be. Yeah, I think it could be that. Uh, you know, it is kind of a repeat. Um, back in, I guess it was the 90s, a lot of firms were purchased by, uh, I know one I know in Indianapolis was purchased by a bank. And mm-hmm. of course, they had to split off the audit section. Became, yeah. But it was really all in one office, pretty much. But it was they had to split that out. And it worked successfully. And then there was, you know, American Express was buying all those firms. And that was, that was such a big deal, you know, how, mm-hmm. but so it, it's, I, I don't know whether it's really going to catch on quickly. Yeah. It's, it's interesting thinking about like the future of our profession, because so much of what we do these days doesn't require the CPA license and you can do tax, you can do consulting, you can do accounting. We call it CAS. AICPA likes to call it CAS. I like to call it just accounting because that's what it is, right? Oh, it's been um, a big moneymaker for a lot of firms. CAS has, yeah. But it's tough when you've got these old, I, I, I want to say old, but just like traditional models, traditional business model. It's hard to fit that into that model and that hierarchy. And, you know, I started out as a bookkeeper and then bookkeeping doesn't get respect, <laughs> I'm like Rodney Dangerfield, right? Get no respect, respect. here. Um, but you learned so a lot, that, right? Yeah, I did. And I love it. You know, it's one of my favorite, it's my favorite thing. I love doing the books. And I, <laughs> that was what my practice did. We did the books. But when I got into the larger firm, it was it was hard to get respect and get the resources you need because here we are, we're just bookkeepers, right? Even though we were trying to raise that up, we were still in the mind of the tax and the audit partners, like second-class citizens. Oh, I, I, never, yeah. I never liked that. What was it like being a woman in accounting when you, when you, <laughs> you know, you said you were like one of two women at this event that you went to this management of an accounting practice event. Like, what was that like? Well, you know, I've thought a lot about that over the years. Uh, why did I, you know, why did I enjoy it? Why did I do well at it? You know, I, for years, I was the only woman in partner retreats, partner meetings, you know, there was, and in my consulting, I mostly worked with men. I think I was comfortable with that because I was a tomboy. I grew up in a neighborhood of boys. Mm-hmm. And guess who the ringleader was? Me. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I could boss them mm-hmm. around. I could beat them up. <laughs> I mean, I, and I had an older brother. And his friends, I mean, he was five years older than me, and his friends picked on me relentlessly, you know, and teased me. And I just was used to that boy culture, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I let things roll off my back. You know, uh, men and women are, I know everybody says we have to be treated equal. You're not equal. You're not the same. There's lots of differences. And I would rather, I probably shouldn't say this. I would rather manage men than a group of women. Drama. Have you man, ever managed a group of females? So uh, in my firm, yeah, it was mostly women who we hired to do mm-hmm. the bookkeeping work. Yeah. Um, I think our firm was like, you know, 80% women. Well, I've seen, was I've seen partners get into a heated discussion in a partner meeting. I mean, almost I'm pretty, pretty hot 
lose yeah. their tempers somewhat, and then they go play golf, you know? Right. On my admin team, they wouldn't speak to each other for two weeks. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's not good, bad. It's just different in general. And I'm just fucking generalities. You can't pigeonhole women and men, mm-hmm. but it, it's just, uh, I think I, I don't know. I just kind of was give and take. Didn't I didn't mm-hmm. get upset as easy. I, I could stand my ground pretty much. Yeah. And I think that helped me survive through those years. Cause if I'd have been a different personality and, and I'm not a, you know, I've always thought of myself as kind of shy, really. I was shy before I got into public speaking and all of that. But it, it, I think it just helped me kind of being around boys when I grew up and around men. You know, it just, I didn't have any trouble fitting in. I didn't, they didn't, I guess they didn't worry they would offend me or anything. So I was more accepted. I wasn't going to break down and cry. <laughs> And you mentioned, you know, that instance where you had with a partner who did they make a staff person cry and then they didn't know what to do. (laughs) They don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, the whole, uh, the whole, that, that is a great topic in accounting firms, the male female dynamic and how, mm -hmm. how to really make it work better and get along better. You know, I used to do a whole presentation Mm -hmm. on that because understanding the differences, you know, what sometimes a, a male will say something. And he's not intending to hurt anybody's feelings. And sometimes a woman reacts differently, not realizing, you know, it's just difference in mm-hmm. in the genders, generation, gender differences. So we still have this big imbalance in firms between partners and staff when it comes to gender diversity. Staff now, it's actually more women than men are entering accounting. And you look at most firms and... Uh, the large firm that I was in briefly, it was definitely more women on the staff side. But then you look at the partners and they're 80% men. It's, Still. it's been that way for many years. You yeah. know, it, even uh, I was trying to think when I first started, I think there was probably about the same women with men. But as I went into the 80s and 90s, definitely more females. In most firms I, I talk to, there's more females. But we lose them. We lose them. Uh, I think that's why more men become partners because the female, she has to make a choice. You know, I want to start a family. Do I want to work those long hours? Firms still have a heavy tax season. You know, it's, I think that's why flexibility, I'm hoping flexibility keeps more females in the profession. You know, I I always counsel them, you know, take a year or two off, but then come back. I think that's a real plus of being a CPA, being in the accounting world. You can take a couple of years off and come back and pick up and go right on. You know, you've got those skills why they should become a CPA because that sticks with you, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's starting maybe to change with the flexibility. Now, I don't know. What do you think about the flexibility, Blake? I mean, it's to me, sometimes if I feel like the firms are bending over backwards, who's the boss? Mm. You know? Well- I think it's uh, what kind of flexibility are you really offering? If you're just letting people work from home, but you're still requiring them to work the crazy hours, like wh- why is it? I always wondered why is it necessary for us to to work these insane hours during busy season? Like busy season is the root of a lot of evil in our profession. Um, we blame it on the government. We blame it on yeah, the government. We blame it on the government. 
But they I like these due dates, you know. Right. But it's like we don't have to take on so much work. We could, <laughs> we could, we could choose. Like, like you said, accounting is very profitable, right? So we could choose not to work so many hours, and we could probably still make a good living. I agree with that. Right. I agree. And and the or partner. You- yeah, or you ahead. could you could have you could have more staff people. Maybe not right now. We can't find them. But I right. always thought, why not have two extras? In our firm, would do that. We would show our staff we're we're staffed at hundred and ten percent compared to last year, because we didn't want them to have to work eighty hour weeks or seventy hour weeks. You know, yeah. our cap it was still a lot of hours. But I think it's the partners are used to making a lot of money. So if they want to hire more people, their salaries are going to go down. Yeah. Unless, you know, well, it's, it's, a just, le- it's a leverage model, right? Like, right. And you grow generally by hiring people and filling them up with billable time. And I mean, I think part of the problem, part of the problem is the hourly billing model really forces you, if you want to be profitable as a firm, to abuse your people, right? To use them, literally use them, utilize them as much as you possibly can. And so then if somebody wants to take like a reduced schedule and work 30 hours a week because they want to raise a family, it's not, you know, it's not conducive. Um, you, but you I make think the, that's changing, don't you? I think it's changing from what I see. I think there's definitely, oh yeah, definitely now, right? Firms, the, firms are allowing the them pretty much to yeah. whatever they ask for, really. But, but you're still saying to those people, you're like basically knocking them off the partner track. Right. So there's this still this choice that has to be made, right? If you don't want to put in the the hours, you can't advance. And we go back to the model must change then. Yeah. Why why do I want to be a partner? Can I have a good career and a job? And you know, not everybody needs to be a partner. So for me personally, like I I feel like I empathize a lot or at least sympathize a lot, I don't know which is the right word, with you know, women who do work in accounting and then want to have children because like uh, my wife and I, the original plan when we had our son was she was going to stop working and I was going to be the breadwinner, like classic situation. We were going to have two and a half kids, a dog, right? Two car garage, all that stuff. Right. And then she went on maternity leave and like two weeks into it, she called me. I was at the office. This is when I was working at the firm. I was like sitting in my office calls me like I can't do this Blake I can't I can't do this for the rest of my life like she realized very quickly that what she had envisioned as motherhood wasn't for her and that she really really missed work and wanted to work and so we had to rejigger everything right and I actually on the opposite side I realized once Thomas got to be like a year old our son I love doing the dad stuff I love being that at parent who picks him up from school, right? And 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 it, it flipped. So I'm now the one, right? Who wants to spend the time? Like if I could, actually, I joke about this, but I, I mean, I'm not really joking about it. If I could, I would. I would totally the be the stay-at-home dad. Yeah, I, I would. I actually really that fits my personality a lot, and I guess that's why podcasting is, you know, a good career that's, for but, me. But that's unusual. That's not the norm. No, it's not the norm. No, but like, so for me, I see, I see myself trying to fit into a CPA firm and like, I, it just, it does not, it does not compute the, you know, the requirements to like be successful as a partner 
don't but work. Would you with, have to be a partner? Say if you were in the right firm yeah. and you had the flexibility, would you? Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what needs to change, right? It's the, the upper out mentality mm-hmm. of right. firms is kind of like. It has the, changed a lot. Yeah. It has changed a lot. It used to be, I mean, that was always the big four model up or out, yeah. you know, well, that's, and that's, yeah. and we get those dropouts, yeah. but the dropouts from the big four are so unequipped to survive in a small firm. You know, we tried to hire big four dropouts. Our people that we had from college level on could outperform run circles around them because our people were exposed to tax and audit and accounting and bookkeeping and, mm-hmm. and uh, plumbers and, and uh, excavators and dentists and doctors. The big four person came in and they'd been on the GE audit for five years. Just didn't work. I mean, they had to start from scratch and they felt I'm from the big four, you know, right. I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal. I, so. I deserve the money. <laughs> the prestige, but you don't really know how to do the stuff that a small firm needs. And that, and that takes a while. And, and some have been very successful. Some big yeah. four partners have started their own firms and been, but most of the ones that I've met along the years, they weren't at the big four a long time. You yeah. Know, a couple of years, maybe kind of the in and out thing to get it on their resume. Yeah. So that's a problem for public accounting because firms used to be willing to invest a lot in their hires. But when the hires don't stick around like they used to, why would you invest all that time to train that person? And so now we're in this strange situation where, you know, the universities aren't preparing people, aren't preparing accountants to do this work. The firms don't want to invest in training them. So where do you learn the skills? It's sort of a a trial by fire thing. You got to be able to do it yourself. Well, you know, that's, what us consultants always tell people is, you know, they hate to spend the money on training. What if we train them and they leave? Well, yeah. what if you don't train them and they stay? Yeah. You know, that's because that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. You know, you don't train them and they stay. And then uh, one time I talked, I'm, I don't know, some group I was talking to. And I said, if you have a, a person that's not performing well, be honest with them, you know, counsel them and, and talk to them and, and, you know, give them one or two years. And one partner raised his hand and said, oh, we give them about eight years <laughs> of failing before we finally <laughs> fire them. Because accountants, CPAs, they don't like to fire people either. Yeah, <laughs> They well, don't like that interaction. That- I've had to do it. And it's probably the worst thing. It's the worst feeling for me. Like, I hate it. So <laughs> I get that. That's what that, you know, I talked about that old time partner that I grew up under when he named me office manager. I think that was my title. He said, you'll never be successful until the people you work with, the other administrative people, you won't be successful till they, they're gone. He said, because they won't look at you with respect. And and he just said that one day and it pretty much turned out that way. But he called me in. He had to fire an admin person. Back then, He, you know, we were only nine people. He mm-hmm. counseled everybody's. And he said, I want you to sit in. I'm going to fire, I um, can't remember her name, Susie. And after that was over, he said, now now you know what it's like to be a boss. And it was painful, you know, just for me observing and kind of sitting there. I mean, I, I felt awkward anyway, but it was my introduction to firing people. And it, it is not pleasant. No. You know? And I always 
like to have tell the story of we had some tech people once, a tech guy wasn't wasn't doing well. And one day I called him in. I said, I want to talk to you right after lunch. And he came in and he said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to let me go, aren't you? And I, that's what you want. You want them to know. You don't want them to be surprised. Right. So when you're managing your people, never let them be surprised. And recognize your all-stars. You know, if you have, a, huh. I don't know about the firm you were in, but so many firms, they don't want to show favoritism. You know, so they, oh, if we give so-and-so a bonus, we better give the others a smaller bonus. Or, you know, if we give them, they can only work four days a week. We better offer that to everybody else because they'll be upset. And the all-stars, I think you need to give them perks. You need yeah. to recognize them. You need to grow them. That's your future. And if somebody complains and says, well, I didn't get that, then explain to them how they can become an all-star. You know, don't yeah. shy away yeah. from that. CPAs don't get that at all. Well, so funny story. The way <laughs> I ended up leaving the big firm was I got an unsolicited offer to go join a technology company. And it was for like 60% more than I was making at this firm that I had joined as a manager. And I brought it to them and I said, look, here's this offer that I got. I mean, I got to take it. Right. And they said, oh, let us figure it out. And they, they couldn't, there was no mechanism in the firm to like accelerate my development, to, you know, put me on a clearer path to partnership, to give me anything in exchange for what this tech company sad. was offering. Right. Sad, sad. So they, they lost me, right. So eight months after they hired me. And I mean, I understand, right. It's just like, there's not the business model doesn't allow for it or the culture of the firm doesn't allow for that kind of thing. If they had done that for me, it probably would have made all the other managers furious, right? And they don't want to deal with confrontation. Yeah. They even in partner groups in the meetings, they will if you get on a you've probably never been in a partner retreat, but at these partner retreats, you know, you get everything out on the table and, and when you bring up the the tough discussion about half of them, I say they look at their laps. <laughs> they, they won't speak up and engage. So when they, after so many years of that, you know, it's just too uncomfortable. So yeah. even, you know, if, if, if two admin people are chatting too much at the front desk, they go to somebody else and say, can you talk to Sally and Brenda? They talk too much. Well, why don't you talk to them? You just walk by there. You know, right. they want yeah. to deflect that. They'll yeah. pick the person in the firm, and usually it's the firm administrator. Can you go talk to so-and-so, whether it's a staff person or an admin person or even another partner? They'll send you to talk to them. <laughs> How much of your job, I can totally see that. How much of your job was just fixing these interpersonal dynamics inside the firm because they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it themselves? My job, when, when I left the firm, my job was talking to people. That's about all I did was talk to people and smooth over things and bring things to light and, and be the bridge between the staff and the partners and often between partner to partner, being that bridge to kind of enhance the communication and soften it if it needed be to maybe strengthen it. I mean, it's all about communication. And every firm I go into, Blake, they're having problems. They want you to fix, you know, come in, bring your magic wand and fix this. It boils down to communication. 
It's not open enough. It's not clear enough. When a new person, a bright young person comes into the firm, you need to have that career path uh, documented and explainable to that person. Like if you could see where your future was going and how soon you might get there would help you make a decision. Definitely would have helped me. Mm-hmm. If, I'd, if I'd had that, if they said, look, don't take this offer. I know they're going to pay you way more, but if you follow this path, you will get to there. I might've stayed, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, cause I wanted control too, right? I wanted the ability to decide what technology my team would be using. But as a manager, I had no control. The tech team, the IT team would, would only do what you wanted really if you were a partner because the partners had the power, <laughs> right? That's so true. Yeah. That's so, so true. That is so true. Yes. I mean, so for me, uh, yeah, being a manager, I think is, and just my personal experience, was one of the most frustrating things because I had all the responsibility with none of the authority. I <laughs> And I didn't really, I couldn't even really manage people because I didn't have the authority to hire or fire on my own either. See, that's, and yeah. And that's the way it is in most firms, right? If you're not a partner, you don't get to do that. Well, it, it depends. You know, yeah. I, I felt like our managers, when you get to a certain size, the managers have a lot of say in that. The partners don't, you know, the managers really manage the people. So they get, get a lot more. Was it a fairly large firm? Did you say it was? Top 25. Yeah. Okay. I'm surprised yeah. so thousand- that you didn't. Thousand staff, hundred partners. Oh my gosh! At the time, yeah. Um, but again, That's it was a- like I was not in the home office; I was in the LA office. Okay. And I think that also makes a difference. Oh, there's a lot of politics. Right? We were, yeah. we were. I was in the office that was a firm that had been acquired several years prior. But still, you know, even when you slap a new logo on the building, uh, it's it's still you know in transition. Well, and that's the issue, you know, that I worry about with all these mergers that have gone on. When we acquired somebody the first time that we made a sizable acquisition, we were worried about losing clients. You know, we don't want to lose any clients and we lost people. So the second time we focused a whole lot more on keeping the staff and not so much. I think we lost one client, mm-hmm. but we lost five people. You know, so we really revamped and redirected our acquisition model to focus on the people coming in, to sign them, get them hooked up with a buddy, let them tour our office before the, they actually move in. And we, we did it the one firm way. And I, I often talk about, are you a one firm firm or you are a silo firm? Tell me and more s- about that. Okay. A one firm firm, which we always strive to be, is that there's one way to do things, processes and procedures. If you're doing it for Joe Partner, it's done the same way for Tom Partner. Mm-hmm. So many firms, whichever partner you're working for, you do it their way. Yeah. Think how inefficient that is in training people. And I always tell the intern story. I love to take interns to lunch after they've been there a month or so. I take them out to lunch. They could imitate the partners. You know, they could they could tell you which ones. You know, well, if you're doing that for Jim, you better not put that work paper in there. But if you're doing it for Ted, you better put, you better have two of those. So if you're a one firm firm, it's all the same. And we tried to maintain that as we acquired so that we could use our people. And we were, our offices were in driving distance. You know, it was Indiana, Dayton, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. 
So we could move people around because it was done the same way. And that is the one firm firm. It's the CPA firm way. In a silo firm, it's, it's like a band of guys sharing expenses. They share the brand. They share the, the team, the staff. Well, even sometimes the staff are like very siloed mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. kind of firm, Often. right? Yeah. And that, that is, but, and I, I tell firms, if you want to be a silo firm, that's fine, but admit it. You know, right. don't, don't fool your people saying we're a one firm firm when they know better because it, um, but it's more efficient with training, with new people coming in, with uh, yeah. profitability. If everything's done the same way, people get better at it, better and better. So it just declare what you are and then move on. I don't care which, you're the owners, you pick whichever model you want, but don't say you're a one firm firm if you're not. Well, Rita, this has been a real pleasure. I have really enjoyed talking to you and learning about your experience and, and your you just have this amazing breadth of knowledge about management of firms. And we, we clearly need that as a profession. It's better management. So I, I believe you are a consultant to firms. You speak uh, on this topic. Like, Where can people learn more about what you do and follow you? Yeah, just go to ritakeller.com. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact, Blake, that I um, have been writing a blog daily for 17 years. Wow. So every business day for 17 years on CPA firm management, one topic. So you can go to my, my website and it'll say categories and you can select communication or leadership or a lot of different recruiting people, HR, and you can read blogs on that topic. You can also go by, well, you can go back to 2009 or 10 and look up what was I blogging about back then. So it's a resource, and and I recommend people that are new to, like new firm administrators, new managing partners, go out and just take advantage of that blog because it has a lot of helpful hints and keeps you in the news. You can sign up. It'll be come to your uh, mailbox every day. Do you read it, Blake? I am subscribing right now. Okay. Never subscribe on there, so you'll get an email every day. And then I send out a monthly newsletter. And uh, what I do now, I'm advisory and coaching for CPA firm management. So uh, most of my clients are actually managing partners. Mm -hmm. They range in size from, I think the smallest is four people. The largest is about 35. So it's it's a range in that uh, I've worked for some of the larger firms, but mostly with uh, those types of firms that really... Some of them I've helped firms get ready to be acquired. You know, the the acquirers are kind of picking out who they want to who they want to bring in. And the secret is working for clients that you really enjoy. Yeah. I think actually that's very selective adding new yeah. clients. That is that is so important too, because it makes the staff happy, right? The the mm-hmm. staff, and this is a younger generation thing, is that we want to have purpose and and meaning, right? That's I don't know how true that is, but that's sort of like well, the I- I think everybody wants purpose and meaning, right? And when you're working with happy so, clients, uh, it's fun, right? I tell uh, CPAs, you know, we go through this agony of we have to outplace the bottom 10%. Every year we should outplace the bottom 10% and deciding who should go. I said, just send a survey to your staff say, give me names of three clients that should not be clients. And the staff will tell you it's the ones that yeah. are messy that are argumentative, you know, they know who it is. 
Just let your staff decide. I don't think anybody will do that, but I wish they would. <laughs> that would be great. I mean, you could have a contest, right? Do a little like survivor contest for your staff <laughs> and they get to vote the Somebody off the island. Off the <laughs> island. Uh, why idea. not, right? That would be a great party. You could have a theme. <laughs> Everybody gets a, or it could be like Bachelor. Everybody gets a rose, you know? You yeah, get to I like pick that. Your theme. Like Rita, that. thank you okay. so much for your time today. This was a pleasure and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. I enjoyed talking to you anytime. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASBA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.